Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. There is a place just for you. A place that embraces the promise of a warm spring night and a reminder to hurry home on a cool autumn evening. It is a place that exists above and below, where the surreal and sublime dance cheek to cheek. This is a place just for you to sit back and enjoy. Beautiful tales for the disenchanted. Our tale tonight is entitled The Ultimate Chapter 10. Tom Major, you fuckhead! Robert feels himself brought back to the present as a middle-aged man, dressed in a dark grey overcoat, a black beanie pulled down over his head, and black rimmed glasses jumps up and down from the street. He watches as the stranger calls again, knowing he has his full attention. Tommy, you fucking legend! Robert gives a half-hearted smile, uncertain if this is someone he has met before. This is what his life has been like for decades. Moments of serenity punctured by the sheer terror of not knowing how to react to someone because you may or may not have met them at some point. About the only fact he can rely on in this moment is that he is definitely in Australia, the only country where a fan can call you a fuckhead and a legend and both are a compliment. DFT fucking rock, man! Yep, definitely one of their fans. Maybe an out-of-towner? Most Melburnians don't give a shit about him walking the streets. They see him all the time. When people visit the city, though, they lose their minds over the number of so-called personalities that casually walk around, oblivious to the attention they sometimes inspire. He gives him a thumbs up and the guy yells something else in return, but between the noise bouncing around the inside of the tram and the industrial sounds of council progress taking place outside, it is lost forever. He looks for the girl that had been sitting next to him, the ghost of Melody, but she too has been swallowed up in the flowing veins of the city. In truth, Robert is almost thrilled that the well-wishing expletives rescued him from his melancholic memories. By the time he enters Ultimate Comics, Robert feels nothing but gratitude to the banter that is filling the store so early in the morning. A deep breath allows him to take in that new comic book smell that has comforted him since he was a child, a scent that takes him all the way back to a time before his parents died. He takes out his earphones, slips them into his pocket and slides into whatever the conversation is that is taking place in his store. Their voices squeeze him back into the present, away from his own thoughts and memories. I know what the quantum realm can do, I just doubt they're going to resort to time travel to win the day, says Damien, his voice slightly higher than normal. This means he's agitated. It is Damien's curse that his tell is so obvious to those who know him. Yeah, you're just in time, says Anissa, giving Robert a wink. Robert immediately knows from Anissa's wink that Kylie is up to her old tricks again and is baiting her boyfriend about something he loves. Oh, what are they arguing about? Ant-Man and the Wasp, says Anissa. Right, okay. Pause. Why are they arguing about Ant-Man and the Wasp? Because Kylie thinks that by introducing the Quantum Realm, this will allow the Avengers to use time travel to beat Thanos. And Damien doesn't like this idea? Anissa runs her long fingers across her chin like she's stroking an imaginary beard as she contemplates this thought. 
Nah, I don't think he's against it. I think he just doesn't believe they'll go there. Go there? Time travel. Right. All I'm saying is, how else are they going to do it? Says Kylie. I think they'll find him on the planet he retired to, get the gauntlet back, and then undo the snap. Lame. You're lame. I'm not lame. I'm a lady, says Kylie, leaning back on the desk while sipping on her soy milk banana smoothie. She looks over at Anissa and Robert, an evil twinkle in her eye. Also, I saw online, Kylie begins, but before she can continue, Damien has both his fingers in his ears. Spoilers! Damien shrieks, his voice finally giving way to full panic as he turns and runs to a corner of the store. I remember when that word wasn't mainstream, Robert says to Anissa. You remember a time when you couldn't watch your favourite TV show whenever you wanted, Anissa says, a wide grin revealing the whitest of teeth. You betcha. They were dark times, Annie. Darker than the two world wars, he says as he slips off his jacket. He feels his phone vibrate with a message, retrieves it from his front pocket, but finds there aren't any new messages waiting for him. His leg has been twitching to ghost messages a lot lately. He puts the phone on the counter and looks back to Anissa. Do they exhaust you as much as they exhaust me? Totally, says Anissa. Imagine dating them. Robert watches as she picks up a pile of comics and makes her way over to the shelves. Anissa is beautiful, glamorous. He knows just by looking at her that Anissa is just passing through their lives, that she is destined for greatness in whatever she chooses to do. Anissa began coming into the store a few years ago after moving down from Brisbane, where she had not had the best of times. At first it appeared that she was friendless, but Anissa was so vivacious and funny it felt contradictory to think of her as a loner. Anissa plays her personal life close to her chest, a private person in a world that lacks privacy. From what Robert could tell, she didn't appear to have a social media presence, which was weird for somebody her age. Either that, or she was just hanging out in places that older people like Robert hadn't heard of. When she first began working at the store, Anissa would hang around long after hours talking to the rest of the staff, but it took Robert a long time to let her into his circle. Having a general mistrust of strangers was born out of too many people wanting his attention for his money or fame, or his money and fame. Why would anyone want to be friends with him, especially at this time of his life? He's an over-the-hill rock star who enjoys the company of weed, booze and cats more than people. Yet through sheer force of will, Anissa had broken down his barriers. She just waited for one night when he was drunk and hired and after work drinks and it turns out his barriers aren't that strong when he's having a good time. Now Robert felt a lot of affection for her even though he didn't really know too much about her life outside of this store. For all he knew, that night she told him everything but while he might bounce back from a hangover like a champion, his memory doesn't always come back for the rest of the ride. Robert turns to make his way to the office and is nearly bowled over when Greg charges out while slipping on his jacket. Hey, do you have a second? Greg says, walking towards Robert. Sure, what's up? Check this out, Greg says, walking past Robert and heading out the entrance to the store. Robert follows Greg onto the street, slipping back into his jacket as the rain disguises itself in the shape of a deceptively wet mist. Greg ducks left into the alley alongside the store and points at their wall. Old posters depicting touring bands, stand-up comedy shows, and bars declaring you can get $1 pots and schnitzels peel from the bricks, a palimpsest of entertainment that had passed through Melbourne. Across the old posters and bricks is a litany of graffiti, all different colour and sizes. Then over this, in thick black words, a new message stands out. This isn't real, reads Robert aloud. Yeah, I can read, says Greg. Robert is taken aback for a moment. Sarcasm doesn't come naturally to Greg. He must be angry. Robert pulls a face and Greg returns one in kind, one that says sorry without needing any words, the type of faces only old friends can share. Look closer at the writing, Greg says, his glasses catching every drop of rain that hits them. What am I missing? Is that Comic Sans? Fuck, that is Comic Sans. I didn't even notice. Now I'm even angrier. Comic Sans font had that effect on Greg. Okay, besides the hideous font, says Greg, attempting to regain his composure, if you look closer, you can see that it isn't written on top of the posters. That's burnt into the wall. Into the brick? Yeah. Are you sure? Greg looks at Robert with a moment of exasperation, then backs off. He isn't angry at Robert, he's angry at whoever did this. Go and rub your fingers over it, Greg says. Robert does exactly that. His fingers run over the words and slip into the grooves of the letters, feeling their way through the contours of the message. He pulls his hands back and rubs the charred brick between his fingers. Fuck! Who did this? No idea. Between this, the attack nearby, and the homeless guy, Greg says, 
I don't know, dude, there was something weird in the air last night. They turn and walk back into the store, their hair adorned with water droplets from the gentle kisses of the rain. They take off their jackets and do the Aaron Sork and walk and talk routine they'd nail well before the West Wing had even been invented. Hang on, says Robert. Which homeless guy? Didn't anyone tell you? Mate, I got in the only thing I witnessed was Kylie winding Damo up. They walk through the store and into their office. Greg hangs his jacket up and Robert throws his over his desk, knocking a wooden cylinder that contains pens and pencils over and onto the floor. For a moment, a thin sheath of annoyance clouds Greg's eyes, but Robert gives him such a comical expression that the moment passes quickly. You idiot, says Greg. Last night, right before closing time, we get this homeless guy wander in and he starts flicking through the new comics we have on display. He's muttering something to himself and at first nobody notices him because there's so many people in the store. Right, but eventually we all begin to notice this strange guy wearing the classic homeless man attire, a battered jacket, ill-fitting shoes and tattered pants that look like they came straight from the 90s. Hammer pants, says Robert. Greg laughs. Not quite that bad, but borderline. Anyway, the thing is, this guy is massive. Fat? Nah, I mean like big, tall. He had to be around 6'8", 6'10". Wait a second, you're saying we had a 6'10 homeless guy in here looking through our comics? Yeah, Greg says. There's a knock at the office door and Greg calls out, Come in! The door opens and there's Anissa holding Robert's phone. I'm guessing this is yours, Anissa asks. Robert jumps and walks over to Anissa, taking the phone from her. You don't know me, says Robert, and then mouths a thank you in her direction. Annie, Greg says slightly too loudly. Both Anissa and Robert jump. You saw that homeless guy last night. How big was he? Fuck, I don't know, seven foot a hundred? Greg looks at Robert. See, I told you. Robert throws the question to Anissa. What happened? Anissa clicks her tongue and leans in the doorway, her athletic body filling one side of the frame. Yeah, I don't know. He was talking to himself, picking up comics, putting them down in the wrong place. Damo nearly had a nervous breakdown, Greg interjects. I let Greg handle him, says Anissa. I wasn't going over there. He was scary, says Robert. Anissa has a think and then shakes her head. Nah, not scary, but definitely intimidating, mainly because of his size, I think. Greg takes up the story again. I go up to him and say, dude, you can't be reading through these comics unless you're going to buy them. And he looks at me and asks, are these the latest comics? And I say, yeah, they are. He then puts his hand on my shoulder and asks when the next ones are coming in. And I tell him next Wednesday. And then both Anissa and Greg go silent. And then what, says Robert, settling back into his chair. He places his phone next to his computer monitor, notices the dust all over the screen for the upteenth time this month, and makes a mental note that if he can't clean up his act, he can at least wipe down his desk. I don't know, he just left. Right, Annie? Yep, he just left. Robert sighs. What you're saying is, nothing happened. Anissa and Greg look at each other. Guess so, but it was weird, Anissa offers. Right, says Greg. He was there, he appeared a little agitated, but when I spoke to him, he was also quite calm, and then he left. I think the thing that weirded me out the most, Anissa says, is that for a homeless guy, he was quite handsome. And clean. Anissa screws up her face. Nah, not clean. He was, he, look, he was clean, but that isn't quite right. There was something else going on. He, I don't know, he, he had a glow about him. Now Robert is completely lost. A glow. Greg nods at Elisa like her description has just solved a mystery he'd been thinking about all night. Yeah, it was a glow, says Greg. It was super weird, says Anissa. Yeah, super weird. Greg backs her up. Robert doesn't quite follow the story he's just been told. It sounds to him like a homeless guy with good hygiene came into the store, looked at some comics and was reasonable when asked to leave. End of story. Yet both their fuzziness on the details and bizarre agreements on other facts confuses Robert. Could it possibly just be the boredom of the workday turning something innocuous into a story that is mildly interesting? Now you have that burnt graffiti in the side of the wall, Robert says, deciding to change tact. What burnt message, says Anissa. Greg begins to tell Anissa about the burn on the wall when Kylie bounds up behind Anissa, resting her hands, palms down on Anissa's shoulders and then placing her chin on the top of her hands. Anissa, without looking, wraps one arm back around Kylie and for a moment they look like the perfect Hallmark card you'd give a person you wanted to celebrate friendship with. Hey Robbie, Kylie says, ruining the moment. There's someone here to see you. 
Robert feels his stomach drop many miles down to the other side of the world. Who could it be? He's had too many emotions this morning and he still hasn't had an opportunity to grab another coffee. He needs at least three long blacks before lunchtime or he's a dead man walking for the rest of the day. Who is it? Robert says this tentatively, uncertain if he really wants to find out. I don't know, Kylie says nonchalantly as she removes herself from her niece's back. Some hot blonde and a cute friend and a kid. Robert frowns. He has no idea who this could be. Ah, okay, I better come out then. Yeah, Robbie, says Kylie, beginning to turn away. You never know, it might be your kid. Kylie skips away before Robert can reply, so he looks to Greg for support. You never know, dude, it might be. Robert stands up and sighs. You're meant to be on my side. Anissa laughs. You're an old rock star, she says. You must have hundreds of kids out there. Robert walks up to the doorway and looks at Anissa, around at Greg and then back to Anissa. I don't know whether to be offended or flattered that you think I got that much action back in the day. Either way, you should have more respect for your elders. Robert moves past Anissa as she affects a childish voice right next to his ear. We love you, Robbie. Robert ignores her as he walks to the counter to see who is waiting for him. At the counter is a woman of average height, long brown hair tied up in a ponytail. She wears black jeans, black boots and a black skivvy, making her look like James Bond, circa the Roger Moore era. She has a blue denim jacket draped over her arm like a drunk lover. She has thick black glasses with a suggestion of ochre red in the arms that only reveals itself on certain angles in the light. Her body rolls with curves and at first glance she appears to be the type of person who likes to maintain a level of fitness but not at the expense of eating something delicious. Over her shoulder a brown suede bag hangs down to her waist with perfectly rectangular tassels draped under the faded silver buckles. Standing with the nonchalance of a woman who could be doing anything right now, she seems content to be in this one place for a moment. Robert has no idea who she is and quickly searches his memory files, tossing image after image aside in a desperate attempt to find a name. By the time he's standing in front of her, he has not only given up on any chance of plucking a name from his rock and roll soaked memory, but he also has her complete attention. Hello, Rob, she says, leaning forward with her hand out. They shake hands and her grip is strong, firm, the type of grip that says, I'm not into power plays, but if I have to, I can destroy you. I'm Veronica. As in the song, as in Riverdale, Veronica says. Stop it, Jam, says a voice from behind. Robert turns to see a blonde woman wearing a pale yellow shirt, a purple skirt and yellow sneakers. For a moment, Robert thinks he's looking at a Laker girl before remembering his dalliance from the previous night. Hello, Erica, Robert says as she walks towards him and gives the type of hug old friends give. If he's honest, it feels quite nice. What brings you in here today? Erica pulls back and Robert sees his staff standing at the counter having a gawk. He gives the slightest of scowls and watches as Damien, Kylie and Anissa pretend to busy themselves. As far as they're concerned, Robert is asexual. He never brings up the topic of women and he never brings any dates to functions. Heck, he rarely gives the girls compliments on their looks, but even when he does, it is in a way a grown-up brother might give you a compliment. This is an exciting development on a cold, wet day. I didn't have work, so I wanted to bring my sister and niece into your store, Erica says, as she turns Robert around to speak to Not Veronica. This is Jemima. Robert looks at Not Veronica and cocks his head to one side. Hello, Jemima. I once met someone who looked very much like you. Oh, really? What was her name? Robert looks up to the ceiling as if he is attempting to remember. Vicky? Vanity? No, that isn't it. Veronica, that was her name. Like the Elvis Costello song. Not like Archie's girlfriend. No, no, no. Definitely the song. She sounds delightful. Did you say deceitful, says Robert? Deceitful, delightful. Let's call the whole thing off, right? Robert looks at Erica, who is holding hands with a young girl with long brown hair coerced into pigtails and a mess of freckles scattered about her nose and cheeks. She's thin and gangly, trapped in that in-between stage where young children begin to walk like adults. She wears a green t-shirt with an image of the lumberjanes arm in arm surrounded by tiny pink love hearts. A long blue dress stops just before it hits the floor. In one hand, she has a smaller denim jacket, but unlike Jemima's, it is cluttered with badges, everything from Ms. Marvel to Wonder Woman and more images of the Lumberjanes. And this winner is Nalani, says Erica, her smile beaming. Nalani extends her arm to shake hands. Hello, Nalani, I'm Robert. That's a beautiful name. I've never heard it before. Nalani's grip is strong, firm, like a kid who knows they're a kid, but isn't afraid of adults. She is definitely her mother's daughter.
It's Hawaiian. It means peace in heaven, Nalani says while still shaking Robert's hand. He finally loosens his grip in the off chance they shake themselves into a business deal that neither of them truly understands. What a beautiful name. Are you Hawaiian? No, mum just liked the name. Robert looks to Erica, who continues to smile in his direction. He doesn't know how to take any of this, uncertain of what these family members know about their recent history. You'll have to ask my sister where the name came from, says Erica. Jemima walks behind Nalani and puts her arm around her daughter's shoulders. In that moment, the three women look like the kindly ones. I went to school with a Nalani, Jemima says, looking down at her daughter. I loved the name back then and thought if I ever have a daughter, I will pass on that name although you can be far from peace in heaven sometimes. Jemima gives her daughter a reassuring squeeze before wiping something invisible from her face. Mom, Nalani says while screwing up her nose. She might be a kid, but she quite clearly doesn't want to appear like one when she's talking to adults. At this point, Anissa walks over with her hand outstretched, past the adults and straight to Nalani. Hello, I'm Anissa. I'm Nalani, she says as they shake hands. I can see you're into the lumberjames, which makes you very cool in my books. Do you want me to show you around? Nalani looks to her mum for permission. Jemima gives a little nod and suddenly the girls are off down the end of the store before anyone can say anything. I'm babysitting tonight and I figured I'd bring Nalani in here. Maybe we could buy some comics, get a bit creative before she has to go to bed, Erica says. Nalani already makes her own comics, Jemima says. That's cool. Do you work nights, says Robert. Nah, hot date. Well, a date. I don't know if it will be hot. I'll be happy with a decent conversation. (laughs) Good luck with that. Be careful, sis, or you could end up with all manner of drunken men in your bed, Erica says, winking at Robert. He feels a sudden wave of panic as he looks at Jemima, wondering what she knows. They're sisters. She probably knows everything. That is why they're here. Robert feels his face flush and the tips of his ears burn. He remembers the unused condom he found polybagged on his penis and shudders internally. What a catch! Ha! No thanks, E. I've made enough mistakes to last a lifetime, says Jemima. Oh, hey, Hi! I'm Damien, says Damien. Robert hadn't seen Damien wander over to his soiree, but he's never been more grateful for his sudden appearance. Sorry to be eavesdropping, but did you say your daughter makes her own comics? Jemima stands up straight. She is quite clearly proud of this fact. She does, and they're great, she says, looking Robert directly in the eye. There's an energy about her that commands the room. Robert feels like he's staring at Jemima and in a moment of guilt looks over at his sister, but Erica is too busy corroborating her story. They're amazing, says Erica. They're so full of imagination and wonder and ideas that blow my mind. She has an ongoing story and everything. Between you and me, Jemima says conspiratorially, she read that final crisis comic and even though she loved it, she said it didn't have enough Wonder Woman, so this is her version of that story. That's great, says Damien. It's the perfect way to start. Art is often built on the foundations of what came before, Robert chimes in. Then it blossoms into something new. This is how stories endure, especially when they feel new and familiar at the same time. For the first time in a while, Robert remembers how he learned to write songs, taking a chord here, a jumble of words there, bringing them together to form something new. He hasn't thought properly about the mechanics of writing and creating in a long time. How old is she, says Damien. She's 11. Perfect. We have this Saturday program where we bring in local artists who look at kids' work and make suggestions on their art and stories, give them pointers, all that type of stuff. Do you want to have a look at our upstairs area? Sure, says Jemima, looking over at Erica and giving her the quickest of winks. You'll be okay, E? Erica's head leans to one side as she scrunches up the other side of her face, tiny lines emerging from her closed eyes, her mouth disappears into her cheek. Robert laughs. She looks like she's seven. I'm sure I'll be more than fine. Damien leads Jemima to the stairs and begins explaining how the program works. Down the far end of the store, Anissa is bent down on her haunches, picking out some titles from the shelves that Nalani might like. Behind the counter, Kylie looks at Robert with a big grin across her face. He does his best to ignore her. He knows exactly what she's thinking, and the last thing he needs is Kylie coming over to the rescue when she'd really be coming over for the gossip. Cute kid, Robert says. She's the best. My sister is great too. It's obvious that they're all very close. We're the only family we have here in cold Melbourne. Are you close with yours? Ah, not anymore. Erica's smile drops as her head instinctively reaches out to touch Robert's arm. Oh shit, I'm sorry. Nothing to be sorry about. Yeah, but it's weird to say this, but I know your parents aren't around anymore and I should have been on top of that. He can feel this getting out of hand, that strange moment when someone who doesn't know you knows your private history. Fame. 
What you get is no tomorrow, as the song used to go. Seriously, it is more than fine, Robert says, not really interested in the conversation continuing down this road. They both look around the store a little awkward. A tall Batman statue with the classic yellow oval stands on one side of the counter. Opposite the counter are five long shelves placed five levels high, bearing the weight of hundreds of comics, all the covers of the latest issues facing outwards, a cacophony of heroes saving the day. Above the shelves is a landscape of toys from a Castle Grey skull still in the box to an old Simple Simon leaning on an angle so everyone can see what it is. Statues of all the classic heroes stand in glass boxes near the door and two racks of t-shirts with four colour heroes sit just on the other side of that. From where they can stand they can see all the artwork kids have made stuck to the wall on the first landing of the stairs. Well, Robert continues, as fine as a grown-up man who owns a comic shop can be. I notice your lump has gone down too. Robert instinctively puts his hand up and feels for the lump, but it is definitely gone. It's weird, but I heal quickly, which comes in handy for all the accidents I seem to have. Erica's smile bounces back. Just as he wonders what to talk about next, he feels a polite tap on his shoulder. He turns around to see Greg holding Robert's phone. Hey, uh, sorry to interrupt, but your phone kept ringing, so I thought you might like to call whoever it is back. It rang like, I don't know, four times in a row, so that might be important. Robert takes the phone from Greg's hand and looks at the number. Even though he doesn't recognise it, he knows the area code and immediately feels his stomach sink. Thanks, mate, Robert says, turning back to Erica. Sorry to be rude, but I really have to return this call. No problem, Erica says, as she spins around to look at the comics on the shelf. Luckily, there are lots of things here to keep me distracted. Robert would much rather continue talking to Erica and her family, but he knows deep down he needs to take this call. He walks back into the office and presses the number. One ring, two rings, three almost rings and then a voice speaks. Rob, it's Nico, says Nick Clements. This confirms Robert's suspicions. If any of the band were going to contact him about this situation, it was always going to be Nick. From a landline too. It would be Nick's way of trying to catch out Robert. He was that type of guy. Nico, how are you? Robert says, doing his best to sound surprised and delighted. Good, good, I'm good. Do you know how difficult it is to track you down? I do, says Robert. I'm desperately attempting to hide my secret identity. There is a huff on the other end of the phone. Nick Clements, the best drummer Robert ever played with, a man of extremes. When they first met, Nick was meticulous in his craft, experimenting with sounds and rhythms that inspired Robert to expand his horizons, helping the band produce some of their most rewarding hits. Once the band began hitting some big highs, though, Nick discovered some new highs of his own. So I'm calling because I'm in town tomorrow and was wondering if we could meet up for a drink. Robert frowns. A drink? A coffee, says Nick. Right. What are you in town for? Isn't it a school week? A momentary pause that lasts long enough for Greg to bustle into the office, talking to someone on his phone, his his movements manic like film footage from the 1930s, all herky-jerky and looking like he's missing some frames. Robert watches Greg as he walks over to his computer and proceeds to look at something on his monitor while saying, yep, and yeah, and I get that, over and over to whomever lurks on the other side. I've got a flexi, Nick says. Cool, great, Robert says as he returns his attention back to his old bandmate. Well, what do you say we go to Mario's at two o'clock? There won't be too many people there and we can sit up the back. Like old times, says Nick. Sure, like old times. Good, see you then. Okay. But Robert doesn't get to finish his sentence because Nick has already left the conversation with a definitive click. He knows what Nick wants. He knows that Nick is coming over to hassle him about these gigs, this anniversary, the whole shebang. Over at his desk, Greg is still staring intently at his computer while giving rudimentary responses to whoever is talking on the other side. Robert decides to sneak out of the office and give Greg some privacy. The blonde lady said to say goodbye, Damien says from the counter. Erica? They've left already? Yeah, they'd lost track of time and had to leave. Did you know the sister runs the IMAX cinema? She said she'd be happy to give me free tickets. You should definitely date her sister. Robert looks down at Damien's beaming face. So you can get free tickets to IMAX, says Robert? Yeah. Do you think about anything else besides movies and comics? Not really. I admire your honesty, Damien. Greg walks out of the office and straight up to them, bristling with an energy that buzzes across his skin. Robert doesn't like this look. He hasn't seen Greg like this since the GFC hit, and he thought he might have to close the business. What's up, Greg? Damien asks. 
Ah, that's the landlord. He's just received a proposal to knock down our building so they can put up some fucking apartments. Apartments! Just what this city needs more of. Robert looks at Damien and Greg, shaking his head. They've put so much work into this space and really cemented themselves as one of the premier stores for all things pop culture in the city. More importantly, with everything else going on in Greg's life, this is the last thing he needs to have happen. Robert looks at his watch. Fuck me, he says. What's wrong, Greg says, his eyes flushed with a sudden endless universe of future possibilities. It's not even lunchtime yet. Damien and Greg look at each other. Fuck this, I'm buying everyone an early lunch. From across the other side of the store, Kylie pops her head around from behind the cabinet of statues. Did you say you're getting us lunch, Robbie? Anissa pops up alongside Kylie, two little bobbleheads bouncing along the cabinet surface. I already know what I want. Robert looks at his friends. I swear to God, you guys have a spider sense for every time I mention lunch, he says. Luckily, I have a credit card and no sense of responsibility. Robert looks at Greg. Let's eat and then try to work this thing out, okay? Greg stares at Robert before visibly shaking off the adrenaline of the conversation he's just had. Okay, thanks, mate. I'll get my jacket. Think about what you want. As Robert walks into the office, he hears Kylie yell, I already know what I want, Robbie. Inside the office, Robert grabs his coat and looks around the office. He knows he doesn't really bring anything of use to this business anymore, not since everything got back on track in recent times. But he's comfortable here. This is his home. Robert can feel change coming and the idea exhausts him. Chapter 11 That afternoon, Robert drifts in and out of sleep. He dreams of his father and mother. His father appears tall and broad in this twilight world. In reality, his father was of average height, but Robert never had the luxury of growing up alongside him to learn adult truths. He can't hear what his father is saying, but he laughs in such a knowing way that it reveals itself to be a memory rather than a fabricated dream. Was his father funny? Yes, yes, he was. These are the important facts that must be remembered that allow his father to remain a person in his world and not just a symbol for a lost childhood. Then the dream shifts without warning and now he's lying on the side of the road, blood gushing from his forehead and into his eyes. He can see the pearl white car they'd been driving littering the road. Amongst the debris is his mother, on her back, staring back at him. She is long gone from this world. He wants to rush to her, but he's too heavy to move. Robert attempts to call out to her, but then the scene shifts and he is gone, dancing with angels through a crack in the past. Or is it the future? Or is it something else? Now he's dancing with Melody at her apartment, that mouldy one-bedroom dive that she loved so much in East Brunswick. She's been crying, another love that failed to live up to expectations. They're drunk and high, moving haphazardly to Albert King's flat tyre. She's waving a cigarette around in her hand like a woman trying to swat a fly that she can't quite see. Robert can't see her face, her red hair wet and plastered across her face. That's right, it was raining that night. In Melbourne, it always rains, even when the sun is out. Once again, he is speaking to her, but he can't hear what he is saying. A flash of lightning shines a brief light in the lounge room, and when Robert looks outside, he is shocked to see that the sky is blood red. He turns back to Melody, who has stopped dancing and is moving to. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. 
Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. ...wards him. Except it isn't Melody. He has no idea who this woman is. Remember, she says. He can hear what she is saying. Remember what, he replies. Ugh, this world, it is too complicated. Layered. It is... difficult. He's back on the lounge in his house. He must have returned home. Robert is aware that he's nearly awake, but he can't open his eyes. Outside, the rain makes relentless music. It is raining again in Melbourne. Wait, is it raining in Melbourne or is his dream? Or is this a memory? And if so, who is this girl that reminds him so much of his friend? No, he's definitely at home on the lounge. He loves coming home to sleep in the afternoon. He's Don Draper time, where he attempts to find rest and inspiration away from the rest of the world. That is a lie. Robert likes coming home at that time because he doesn't look after himself. It is amazing that he's never sick, no matter how much he attempts to run himself into the ground. Even the lump on his head was temporary, gone without a trace, a smooth surface that fails to hint at any previous night shenanigans. There is a distinct possibility that if Robert had aged with grace, taken up yoga, removed all his vices and taken up a gym membership, he'd be in tip-top condition. There is one problem with that, though. When you're sober all the time, how do you escape you? Now he's performing with his band. There are hundreds, perhaps thousands of people in front of him, looking at them with love and devotion. He can't hear the song he's singing, but he can tell the audience is into this moment, singing his words back to him. Can you imagine that? Strangers loving you so much that they take the time to learn the words that spilled from your mind and served a wave of verses and chorus into each of their worlds? This is the big time and the band is having a great time. He looks to one side and can see Christy, younger but no less powerful, smoking a cigarette, watching their audience lose their minds. Then someone waves to him and it is Melody, smiling, laughing, holding up a drink to cheers. Robert, in his moment of glory, returns to the crowd and sings, the stage lights flashing all around him. He looks up at the sky and notices that the arena doesn't have a roof. How odd. That doesn't seem right. He can see the stars on this cloudless night, reminding him with each twinkle that this moment won't last forever, the past shining down and straight into eternity. Robert sees the moon, bright and red. Bright and red? He watches it hanging up there in the sky like a pinprick of blood on a black t-shirt. Why is the moon red? Has a dream infected his memory and turned it into something different? Robert looks about the stage for some support, but his band are playing hard, lost in the moment, the highlight of their careers. Over to the side of the stage, nobody else seems to notice either. They're too busy talking or dancing or looking at the crowd or watching the band. Something moves between his feet. He looks down and it is Alfred making black figure eight shapes between his cherry red Doc Martens. Okay, this is definitely not a memory now. They were definitely times Robert would have liked to take his cat on tour, but there is no way he would be on the stage with him. For starters, where would you hang the backstage pass? On Alfred's collar? Even though he can't hear the song or what he is singing, this thought makes him laugh and he can hear the chuckle deep in his throat. What a funny dream. He turns to Melody so he can ask her to take Alfred off the stage, but it isn't her standing on the side of the stage. It is, but it isn't. She's dressed like Melody. She looks like his friend, but it isn't her. She's waving frantically. How long has she been waving? Turning to the band, something has changed. They're not young anymore. They're old. Dead fingers tapping continue to rock, but everyone looks so much older. Grey hair, instruments barely hiding, paunches, skin no longer taut, instead beginning to slide down the cheekbones and hang without mercy from beneath the chin. They're playing hard, shaking their bones, selling the sex appeal of a rock and roll band, but it looks sad and desperate. Who do you think I am? Melody is calling to him, above the music he can't hear. Robert continues playing, singing, sweat running down his face and into his eyes. It is stinging, but he has to finish the song. Melody continues to call out, but she can't be heard again. Why can't he hear her? There's a low-level hum that appears to be drowning out the world. Now the sweat running down his face is stinging his eyes even more and he's going to have to deal with it. He stops playing for a moment to rub the back of his hand across his face. When he returns to keep playing, he notices that the guitar is gone. He turns to the band and notices they all stop playing as well. Not only that, but they're old, really old, almost ancient. Their collective skin looks like it could tear under a harsh wind. They're pointing at him. Robert turns back to the audience, but there is nobody there. Where did they go? Was there ever an audience present? 
If only that damn sweat would stop stinging his eyes. He wipes the back of his hand across his face yet again, and when he looks down, all he sees is blood covering his knuckles splattered up his wrist. It was never sweat. It was always blood. Over on the side of the stage, only Melody stands there, still waving at him. Anxiety grips the shoulders and crawls up his spine, dancing with electrical currents across the cerebral cortex. What is happening? That isn't Melody, it is someone else, dressed like a superhero. A tight red costume with a yellow cape, her bare legs covered in cuts and bruises. She isn't waving at all. She's pointing. Down at the ground. He follows where her finger is pointing and looks at his cat, sitting patiently in front of him, staring into his face. Remember, says Alfred. Robert wakes suddenly. He opens his eyes and there's Alfred sitting on his chest, staring into his eyes. Did you just say something, he says. But Alfred just blinks and stretches his paws out in front of him. Robert turns his head to one side and picks up his phone. When he notices the time, Robert finally knows one thing for certain. He's going to be late for Wendy. Chapter 12 can I just say once again, I am so sorry for being late, says Robert. I insist this meal is on me. Wendy looks at Robert and laughs. Oh, I know. You can't leave me waiting that long and not expect to pay in some way. Robert lifts another spring roll, dips it into the peanut sauce and bites it in half. I blame Alfred. He was so comfortable asleep on my chest that I didn't have the heart to move him. And then boom, deep sleep time. Wendy takes a sip of her third mojito. She's already decided that Robert would be paying for their dinner before he called 20 minutes after their supposed meeting time. Heck, she knew how useless her friend could be, so they had deliberately met on Brunswick Street to make things easier. Wendy didn't venture from Elwood too often. Not these days. She completely bought into Melbourne's other side of the river, War of Words, that often erupted when anyone suggested to her about travelling north. She made an exception for Robert because their friendship was well into its third decade and she was already across his inability to arrive anywhere on time. He hadn't been like this to begin with, but since the accident, this had become one of his quirks. Don't blame Alfred for your uselessness. How is the little fella? He's old. Aren't we all? Yeah. Robert finishes off a spring roll and launches into his next one. Behind he hears the constant murmur of the restaurant, meals being made, orders taken, chefs and waiters bouncing around in a constant movement, their conversation slipping back and forth between English and Vietnamese. A soft sizzling sound of meat being cooked lays underneath the restaurant's chitty chat. A clink of glasses being tapped together, a cry of cheers from another table. Without knowing why, the word cheers reminds Robert what he's placed in his pocket. Hey, I've got something for us before the mains come out. Wendy finishes her drink. She pushes her light brown hair to one side, revealing her deep brown eyes, puffy after years of partying and playing music in late night pubs. Wendy doesn't wear any makeup. She can't be arsed with that type of shit. And her once sharp jawline has begun to sag with the weight of age and fun. Unlike some of her contemporaries, Wendy's skin is lined with experience and when she frowns, her forehead moves and crinkles. Robin and Wendy, two old rockers who don't give a damn about how they look as long as they look like themselves. What have you done? Wendy says while spitting her glass in her hand. Robert puts his hand in his pocket and surreptitiously reveals a joint like a magician at a very sad and cheap magic show. That seems like a terrible mistake, says Wendy. I know, but it makes us cool. Shall we go outside? Of course. Wendy has already moved her chair out and is standing before Robert can find the mechanics to make his body work. He stands stiffly and grabs his jacket, letting the staff know they'll be back in time for mains. He picks up the last spring roll, dips it in the chilli sauce and places it in his mouth all at once before slipping his arms in his jacket. He catches Wendy looking at him. Hot! What can I say, says Robert, spitting spring roll from his mouth. I'm a catch! They move through the restaurant, doing their best to avoid bumping into the tables that are all positioned slightly too close together. Most of the diners ignore them, while some make an effort to move with the heaviest of size, suggesting this is the worst moment of their lives. They slip outside and the wind whips Wendy's hair about her face, reminding her that it is indeed quite cold. Robert points across the road to a street flanked by a florist on one side and second-hand clothes shop on the other. More importantly, it disappears into darkness without a street light to illuminate their smoking habits. A tram glides by, one of the new models that barely make a noise except for when the ding of a bell sounds to warn people it's coming. A modern-day behemoth for a technological age. Robert looks through the tram's windows at all the people with their heads down, headphones on, looking at whatever it is they have in their hands, barely registering anyone else they're sharing their journey with. 
He leans over to Wendy to make a pithy remark about these nighttime travellers and their lonely existence, and then remembers this was how he probably looked when he caught the tram this morning. He shakes his head. The morning seems so long ago now. He has no concept of time. He feels like he met Wendy only yesterday when he's known her for decades, yet this morning feels like a million years ago. Is this what age does to the mind? Does life go on forever until it suddenly stops? Robert shakes the thought away, unwilling to engage with any dour thoughts, especially when he's about to get wasted. This is about making food tastier. Pot is the steroid of delicious. He'll leave the panicked thoughts that the green can inspire to when he's home alone with his cat. With the wind blowing down Brunswick Street and with no cars in the way, Robert and Wendy cross the road and walk into the darkness of the street ahead. They stand huddled around a tree and Robert pulls out a fat joint. He lights it, draws the smoke deep into his lungs, feels his head tingle and hands it over to Wendy. She gives him the thumbs up and does the same. Fuck me, this is strong. Is it? Robert is surprised. It doesn't feel that strong to him. No wonder you're so difficult to get a hold of, you fucking stoner, says Wendy, handing the joint back. If you're smoking that shit all the time, I'm surprised you turned up tonight at all. Robert takes in another long toke. I wasn't stoned today. Promise. Just got a lot on my mind at the moment. Wendy looks at Robert as his hair whips and curls around his face, the smoke of the joint released from his lips blowing back into his eyes. He comically blinks a little too much, a little too quickly, and Wendy laughs. Yeah, I know. I caught up with Caddo on the weekend. Robert hands the joint back to Wendy and shivers. It's beyond cold in Melbourne. You can feel it in the bones and the deepest of thoughts, the ones you hide from even yourself. There's a particular mist hanging in the air that engulfs the city and gives the orange streetlights a bulbous haze. On Brunswick Street, another tram glides by heading into the city, almost empty except for a couple of people scattered about at different seats. So you're across what's going on, Robert says with his hands plunged deep into his pockets hoping to warm up. You might find this hard to believe, Wendy says, holding the smoke in her lungs. You were barely mentioned. The world doesn't revolve around you. She finishes her sentence, blowing smoke straight into Robert's face. He flinches again and Wendy laughs. Fuck, I'm not saying it does. I just don't want to go over old ground, you know. Robert takes another long toke. His head is really beginning to spin. We spent most of our night talking about that incident Christy had with her brother a few months ago, Wendy says. Incident? What incident? Wendy takes the joint from Robert's hand. You don't know about her brother and the gun? Uh, It isn't my story to tell, so you'll have to ask her. Come on, you can tell me. Wendy takes another long toke and hands the joint back to Robert. That's enough for me. Okay, I'll give you the bullet points. Robert smiles at Wendy's inadvertent pun and finishes off the joint while listening to the story. She was right. From the sounds of it, it really isn't her story to tell. For once, he'd love to hear a story about someone in his circle who was having a good time. It appears that everyone is having struggles, ranging from the nagging to the terrible. As Ray Davies once sang... Where have all the good times gone? While Wendy talks, Robert motions to return to the restaurant. She nods without missing a beat in the story. When a break in the traffic presents itself, they cross with their hair, whipping about their heads, stone gorgons on a mission to eat. From across the street, they hear a man yell out to Robert, but neither of them flinches. They've trained themselves over the years to ignore the sounds of strangers calling to them. You just never know when it is a fan yelling out, they love you, hate you, want to be your best friend, or just want to acknowledge that you exist. Too many variables. They pause at the entrance to the restaurant while Wendy finishes her truncated version of Christie's story. Fuck, I had no idea, says Robert. As I said, let her tell you. It's her story. I've just given you the broad strokes. Yeah, I hate people telling my stories too. They always fuck it up. Let's get inside. I'm freezing. They roll in like two cold marbles in a maze, bouncing back and forth between the tables, bumping into the backs of chairs before returning to their seats. If anyone gives them a dirty look, they don't notice. Both are too focused on making their way to the table where their food is waiting for them. Wendy looks at Robert, his hair a mess. You look like Stevie Nicks, she says with a snort. You look like Wendy Tyler. I am Wendy Tyler. Robert looks over at the waitress and makes a motion for more drinks. She smiles in his direction and goes behind the bar. Good thing you look like her then. Fuck, I am really stone. Yeah, 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 let's not draw attention. And try to remember not to eat with just your hands, we're classy. Wendy holds up the chopsticks. I can barely use these when I'm straight. The waitress arrives with two drinks, another mojito for Wendy and a glass of Shiraz for Robert. He attempts to say thank you and trips over his words, his mouth feeling foreign and numb. Wendy stifles a laugh until the waitress is gone. 
Robert attempts to give her a dirty look, but instead he's immediately seduced by the smell of the food and forgets to follow through. There are three vegetarian dishes, a couple of extra sides, and a massive bowl of steamed rice. You're fine without any meat? As long as you're paying, says Wendy, I'm more than fine. So enough about Christy. Tell me about your problems. Between mouthfuls of food and another two rounds of drinks, Robert tells Wendy about the offer for the band. Wendy barely speaks throughout, listening intently, or when her mind wanders, giving the impression she is listening intently. His words bounce back and forth over multiple ideas and suggestions, hot takes followed by long pauses, ruminations that wander into cul-de-sacs of meaning, at other times incredibly erudite and philosophical. By the time they have finished their meal, Robert also finishes his rant. That's a lot to take in, says Wendy. Sorry, I just got on a bit of a roll there, Robert says, looking sheepish. I was actually talking about the food. I've overeaten. Robert laughs. That was a lot of food. I'm such a fucking cliche sometimes. He sits back and smells the food from the kitchen, tempting him to order one more dish. He wonders if he can talk Wendy into sharing one more main or even a dessert before thinking better of it. Look, this is how I see it, Wendy says. It really is this simple. If you don't want to do it, don't do it. You don't owe anyone anything. Yeah, I know, but in a way, I do. Well, I do feel like I should do something. It was my decision to break up the band. Wendy flicks her hair to one side and looks at Robert, sizing him up, deciding whether her next question is one for her to ask. You know that accident was a major thing in your life. Robert looks back toward the kitchen. Maybe he will get another meal. He's not certain he's hungry, but it would help him deflect the question. Yeah, but I'm fine. Not a scratch on me. Apparently, I have Wolverine's healing powers. Who? Wolverine. Wendy looks down at her plate, trying to work out what her friend is talking about. He's a comic character, right? Yeah. Played by Hugh Jackman. Ah, he'll always be the boy from Oz for me. For the first time that night, the conversation dries up. Wendy decides to push a little further. She's not going to let Robert get off so easily this time. Have you seen any of them yet? A waiter comes over and begins to remove the empty plates stained with the remains of their meals. Wendy asks for another drink and Robert gives the nod that he'd like another as well. They sit in silence while they wait for their privacy to return. Having cleared the table, the waiter leaves and Wendy waits for Robert to answer her question. He looks at her confused for a moment before remembering what she asked barely a a couple of minutes ago. Uh, no, not yet. Robert feels awkward. He's too stoned for this. He leans back and rolls his long hair into a ponytail that unravels as he leans onto the table before daring to look back in Wendy's direction again. I'm not telling you how to, she says. No, 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 of course. I get it. I know you're right. I just think it would be good for you. Yes, I think so too. My mind uh, isn't what it used to be. Before they can continue, the new drinks arrive and the two friends pause long enough to clink their glasses together. Up your bum, says Wendy. May our children never find us, says Robert, before drinking half the cocktail in front of him. When did I start drinking mojitos? Didn't I ask for wine? Stop trying to change the subject, says Wendy. You honestly don't owe those guys anything. They can't be the reason you do this. Robert rubs his face. He's too baked for serious answers. I know, Wendy, I just... Maybe if I did this, it would get the creative juices flowing again. Whatever happened to that solo album you were working on? His solo album. Robert hasn't thought about it in a long time. In fact, he hasn't thought about it for such a long time that he isn't quite certain what Wendy is talking about at first. That goddamn solo album. More like a deconstructed album. Hours of music, scattered vocals on a computer, scribbled lyrics crossed out with new words over the top, a palimpsest of indecision. Scraps of paper jammed into folders with words that once made sense to the person he used to be. His solo album is a document of indecision at best. Whenever he thinks of that album, it usually signals a time to light up a J or knock back a drink or six. This collection of songs was going to be his crowning glory to prove his best days weren't behind him. But he now wonders if the parameters of the band gave him context, boundaries in which to push against. Without anybody telling him what he could and couldn't do, he was essentially overwhelmed by the amount of choices he could make and in the end, made none of them. It's, look, I'm not going to lie, I've left it alone. For a bit. It's, while Robert searches for the right words, Wendy takes a long sip of her drink and blisses out before deciding to help him. Challenging, says Wendy. That's not the half of it. I liked what I heard. Well, you're a friend and just say thank you, Robert. Robert sighs. Thank you, Robert. Wendy smiles. See, that wasn't too difficult. 
Maybe I can come over and we can go over the tracks you have. You might need some new ears. Who knows? I could be your Jimmy Iovine. I met Jimmy once. He talked at me at a club for fucking hours. In his defence, everything he said was fucking fascinating, says Robert, finishing off his drink. He loves Wendy, but he doesn't want to have this conversation. Not tonight. Maybe not ever. He looks about the restaurant at the different types of patrons, a couple in the flush of a new romance, an older couple with what looks to be their grown-up children having a meal, maybe celebrating an occasion. Three women in a corner locked deep in conversation, hands gesticulating and mouths suggesting they're enjoying the tastiest of gossip. Robert can smell the food in the air. Something smoky is being prepared in the kitchen. Wendy. He should pay attention to Wendy. She's being helpful. He could use the help. I'm just going to say it, Rob, begins Wendy. He knows what she is going to say. Please don't say her name. He does what he can to refocus on anything else, to hold her name as far away as possible. Concentrate on the kitchen, the smoky meal that is being prepared. Not tonight. Mel's death wasn't your fault. There it is, the name that dare not be mentioned. Was her death his fault? wasn't like she needed protecting. Melody didn't need protection. Sometimes you had to look out for others, especially considering the world he lived in, where rock stars could prey on the goodwill of those who looked up to them. Nah, Melody was too smart to fall for that. She had a keen intellect and could be feisty when she decided to unleash it. She also had a wicked sense of humour that often sailed past those she shared it with. Not that Melody was perfect. She had her flaws. Her confidence could be a strength and a weakness. Her desire to be constantly independent could leave her trapped in her own thoughts and preconceptions. No, he didn't think Melody's death was his fault per se, but he could have done more. He could have been more aware of her situation. He was older and could have used that experience to help her, just a little, like a real friend. He recognised her depressive streak. Sometimes this world just felt too complicated and grey for the two of them. He wants to answer Wendy, but he feels woozy. He's had too much to drink, too much to smoke, way too much to smoke. There's smoke overwhelming his mind, his senses. He looks around the restaurant at the patrons as their conversation appears to be slowing down. That smell from the kitchen, so much smoke creeping slowly across the ceiling, slim, dirty tendrils feeling their way into the restaurant. What is happening? Is something on fire, says Robert? What? Wendy lets her voice trail away as she follows Robert's gaze upwards and watches as fire suddenly zigzags above her. Robert feels time slow down, his senses sharpening, cutting through the fog of the drugs and booze. Without thinking, he stands, grabs Wendy by the wrist with one hand and drags her to her feet. With his free hand, he grabs his jacket and moves towards the entrance. Within moments, the restaurant is filled with flames. Patrons begin to scream. Robert arrives at the door without thinking, dragging Wendy behind him. He kicks the door open and guides his friend outside before turning back to the rest of the patrons. He calls out as loud as he can, but his words sound far away, in a language he barely understands. Some of the people push past him to escape as the room fills with smoke that burns the eyes and scorches the throat, the lungs. Over to his right are three girls standing around their table, not moving, screaming. Robert forces his way past the overturned chairs and tables as something explodes out the back, the noise emanating from the kitchen. He flinches at the sound before making his way to the girls. He can see that one of them has her leg looped through her bag strap that is in turn caught up under the chair leg. He grabs the girl closest to him by the shoulders and puts his hand over over her mouth to stop her from screaming. Run! He grabs the second girl closest to him and forces their hands together before pushing them towards the door. Between the heat and the popping sound of burning glass, he instinctively knows he doesn't have much time. He grabs the chair and throws it to one side. He untangles the girl's handbag so hot that the vinyl strap burns his hand. He cries out in pain, but he doesn't have time to acknowledge the sensation as he removes it from her leg and throws it to one side. He can feel the girl's legs begin to buckle as the flames have reached the entrance to the door. They have so little time. Robert lifts her up and spreads his jacket over his head and shoulders so he can protect her from the dripping fire. He moves as briskly as he can, staying as low as possible, watching his feet and making certain he doesn't trip. With his shoulder leading the way, Robert bursts through the door and the flames with the girl wrapped around his torso and neck. He flings the jacket to one side, smouldering with smoke. Out on the street, the cold Melbourne air slams into his face and rolls down into his lungs. Robert coughs as he stumbles towards a parked car and tries to place the girl on the bonnet, but she won't let go. Soon he feels more people wrapped around him, more hands clawing at the two of them. There is screaming and crying all around, and in the distance, the sound of a fire truck growing louder by the second. He finally gets the girl to loosen her grip on him. It's okay, it's okay, Robert says, looking down at her, the girl's face covered in blackened snot and tears. She's barely out of her teens. 
Robert staggers back and realises the hands that had been clawing at them were her friend. They hold each other, their sobbing turning them into one seething mass. Robert looks for Wendy, but before he can search for her properly, he remembers the staff. From behind, one of the windows cracks and explodes as the flames curl up the facade of the restaurant and out into the night. Robert looks around and sees Wendy standing in the middle of the Brunswick Street with a bunch of unlookers. A motionless tram lights up the road, the few passengers gawking from the windows at the spectacle before them. In the distance, the sirens become fatter and insistent as they draw closer to the scene. Robert looks around and thinks, he knows Fitzroy, it has been his home for decades, and he pictures the back of the restaurant with the tiny cobbled alleyway that cuts through the heart of the suburb. Robert knows what he must do. He runs over and picks up his jacket, running away from the restaurant. He turns left around the corner of Brunswick Street, Wendy's voice calling to him. He doesn't have time to let Wendy know what he's doing. Within seconds, he's standing before the darkened entrance to the alleyway, a miasma of stale piss and smoke overwhelming his senses. There might be staff, he can still help. He walks into the shadows slowly enough to allow his eyes to adjust to the dark. He watches flames spitting out the back of the restaurant. But with one extra step, the fire suddenly disappears. That's weird. Could the fire brigade have sorted the situation out so quickly? He thought they sounded like they were still a minute away. How could this have happened? Maybe the fire burnt itself out. From behind, he hears a person cough. Then he notices people are talking and crying. Robert walks back to the entrance of the alley and looks across the road to the opposite corner. Sitting huddled together are the staff, blackened by the smoke, holding one another in shock. They got out of there quickly then. It makes sense. They were at ground zero for the accident. He hopes this is all the staff and that nobody was left behind. Robert turns toward the back entrance as he hears the fire engine arrive amidst more shouting. Do they know the fire is out? Maybe the fire is still burning out the front. Looking further down the alleyway, Robert can see someone standing in the shadows. A tree hangs over the brick wall opposite the back of the restaurant, the branches and the leaves blocking out the light from the street lamps at the end of the lane. Are his eyes playing tricks? He's sure there's someone standing there. Robert moves a step forward and can definitely see the outline of a large figure standing motionless. There is a strange feeling in the air, that supercharge of electricity before a storm break. He feels his mouth go dry. Hey, are you okay? Robert says, taking another tentative step forward. There isn't a reply. Whoever it is could be in shock. He takes another step closer. His chest is tightening. He can feel the hair on his neck beginning to prickle. Maybe they started the fire. One more step. He just needs to take one more. Robert! He turns around to see Wendy standing at the entrance to the alley. Robert turns back to look at the figure, but whoever it was is gone. He couldn't have run down the other end. It's too long to have gotten that far in the moment Robert wasn't looking. He peers into the shadows, but the lane is empty. Surely his eyes were playing tricks. Yes, and stop calling me Shirley. He smiles to himself. At least he can still make jokes. That must mean everything is okay. He turns back to Wendy. Coming! Wendy is rubbing her arms to keep warm. Her jacket must have been left in the restaurant, lost for good now. Robert slips his jacket over Wendy's shoulders. She pulls it tightly around her neck, a smoky woolen cape. What were you doing? Wendy says, a slight tremor to her voice. I thought I could help get the staff out the back way. Wendy looks over at the staff on the other side of the street. Did you do that? Robert looks at them and back at Wendy. No, they are already over there. Looks like the fire went out just as the fire truck arrived. Robert gives Wendy a hug around the shoulders. That was lucky then, he says. It must have burned itself out, I guess. Can you wait a second? Wendy nods with Robert putting one hand on her cheek to see that she's okay. Wendy's tough, she'll be fine. He looks at his hand and fingers, surprised to see that they're not burnt, not a single mark on them. Lucky, he's a lucky guy. Robert walks across the street and over to the staff as they begin to make their way over to the front of the restaurant. He finds a waiter who had been looking after them for most of the night. They look at each other before Robert speaks. Are you okay? They walk together to find the fireman walking in and out of the burnt remains at the front of the restaurant. Robert feels a pang of sadness. He loves eating here. How depressing. He catches himself for thinking selfish thoughts. It's just a relief that nobody died. Robert looks back at the waiter who finally acknowledges his question. A simple nod letting him know he's fine. How did you get out, says Robert. Another staff member walks over to the waiter and they have a conversation before both burst into tears and hug one another. Wendy leans into Robert and wraps her arm around his side. What a way to straighten up, she says. Yeah, is all Robert can muster in response. Now the police have arrived, mingling with the onlookers and asking questions. There's a bright light from the far side of the crowd and Robert cranes his neck over everyone to work out what it could be. It's a news crew lighting up one section of the street with their cameras and finding people to interview. 
Jesus, shit. Robert needs to get out of here before he's brought before the cameras. He doesn't need any unwanted publicity. There's enough patrons and staff all in shock sharing their stories with each other and the authorities. Before they can escape, a young policeman walks towards them. To Robert, he looks about 15. Excuse me, sir, were you in the restaurant when the fire broke out? The policeman says, his voice breaking slightly. Robert nods and hears Wendy offer a subdued, yeah. Do you mind if I ask you some questions? Not at all, says Robert. Can we avoid the news cameras, though? This will only take a second, the policeman says as the second news crew arrives on the scene. Fingers crossed he's correct. Before the policeman can say anything, Robert's waiter tugs on his arm to get his attention. He turns his attention away from the policeman and looks the waiter in the eyes. Big guy saved us, says the waiter. Robert doesn't understand. Big guy? What do you mean big guy? A big guy came in, saved us all. A member of the staff comes over and gently takes the waiter back to his group of co-workers. Robert looks at them and thinks about how quickly they all escaped and got across the street to safety. He thinks about the figure in the alley. He wonders how the raging fire seemed to burn itself out so quickly. He thinks about the electricity in the air. He can hear Wendy answering questions that the policeman asks. For the first time since the fire began, Robert feels the chill in the air descend across the back of his neck. Just a few questions, sir, the policeman says. I don't know if I have any answers, says Robert. He looks at Wendy. She's noticed that he is feeling the cold and wraps herself around his torso, a friend trying to warn him. But yes, questions. And then I'm going to get off this street and have a stiff drink. Thank you for joining us. You're always welcome here. Remember to avoid danger with strangers and never accept advice from mice. We hope to see you again here soon. Until then. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.